there is a verse out of the book of Proverbs that intrigues me. It fascinates me. It's found in chapter 24, verse 16, and it says this. For though the godly may fall seven times, each time they rise again. Think about that. Though a godly person may fall repeatedly, the characteristic of a godly person is that each time they get up again. Godliness is not defined by perfection, but by perseverance. It's defined not by someone who has never fallen and so has an untainted life. It's defined by those who are broken but keep coming back to Christ for forgiveness and restoration. That's what godliness is all about. And if you want to talk about fallen, broken lives, perhaps there's no better person than we can talk about than the Apostle Peter. He knew what it was to fall with the best of them. I mean, we could go through the life of Peter, couldn't we, and mention multiple times where he did or said the wrong thing. Peter, I envision him as this bold, headstrong extrovert. You know, the guy who was impetuous, with uh, unbounded energy, always speaking before thinking, and then suffering the consequences later on. That's who Peter was. And yet the flip side is that Peter was bold and courageous, a great man of faith, an apostle with authority. He opened up new areas to the gospel in the Gentile world, and that was tough for him. But Peter knew what it was to fall. I suppose the most popular story of a fall in Peter's life goes back to the night in which Jesus was betrayed. They're having one final meal. And Jesus says to his disciples around the table, all of you will fall away. And then he quotes Zechariah 13. For I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And I think the apostles probably looked around and said, what, what, what does he mean? Finally, Peter spoke up. And he said, I don't know about these guys. They may fall away, but not me. I will never fall away. And Jesus must have shaken his head and said, Simon, Simon, Luke 22 records these words. The devil desires to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that you, your faith would not fail. When you have turned back, Peter, I want you to strengthen your brethren. Peter probably shook his head and said, whatever. I have no idea what you're talking about. They left the upper room and went to the garden, and there Peter did try to defend Jesus with a sword, but it didn't work so well. And then Jesus was arrested. He was taken for trial. Peter followed, lingering behind a little, went out to the courtyard, heard about the proceedings as word came out from the inside into the courtyard. 
Three times Peter was asked, aren't you one of them? And he said, I don't. No, I don't know this guy. I'm not one of them. And the last time he swore, not as we think of vulgar words, but of taking an oath. I swear by heaven above and the God who made it, I don't know this man. And as soon as he said that, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus. And he left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Now that's a fall, right? It was after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. At some point, Peter saw the risen Christ, but still was discouraged enough to go back to fishing. And so Jesus comes and finds Peter in John 21, where we read, Jesus said to Peter, Do you love me more than these, this old life? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. And the Lord then commissioned him, recommissioned him. Remember what I said before you fell that I wanted you to, when you turned back, I wanted you to strengthen your brethren. I want you to feed my sheep. Play the role of a shepherd. And it's no mistake when you get to 1 Peter, his first epistle, that he mentions the great shepherd of the sheep and calls upon other elders like himself to feed the flock of God. And so Peter is restored, and he begins that ministry. Now, we fast forward to the end of Peter's life. We know he was martyred 68 A.D. under the reign of Nero. So he probably wrote his two last epistles, 66, 67 A.D., somewhere in there. And 2 Peter is his last will and testament. This is his last shot to fulfill the commission he received from Jesus Christ. It's much like Paul's last will and testament in 2 Timothy. In both books, they see the coming apostasy. In both books, they mention that they're not long for this earth, and they knew, know that they're going to go to, into the presence of God very soon. And in both books, uh, they're writing to encourage people to be strong. And so Peter gives us his last will and testament in 2 Peter, which is a book for those who are fallen, teaching them how to get back up and how to remain strong. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter. The theme of this book I think one of the best ways to think of this book is with this theme, to know God intimately and deeply to the place where you live like him practically, consistently. In other words, know God and live godly. That's the theme of this wonderful letter from the Apostle Peter. In chapter 1, you've got the theme of cultivation. That is, we need to be growing in our faith. He talks about the fact that we've received a precious faith and talks about some of its benefits. He says you need to add to that faith. You need to grow in that faith. And the basis of our faith is not some cleverly devised story of man. It's the revealed word of God, inscripturated by men but written by the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, he says, a word of caution, false teachers are coming, beware. 
And in 1 Peter, the emphasis was persecution coming in from the outside, outside of the church. Now it's destructive heresies coming in from the inside. Beware of these false teachers who talk a good talk, who might even mention the name Jesus, but their doctrines are damnable heresies. That's the old King James. In other words, those who preach them are condemned and those who believe them will be condemned. So you've got to know God and grow in him, chapter 1. You've got to know error and avoid it, chapter 2. And these false teachers are with us today and they are infiltrating the church and they are leading people astray from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter's about ready to leave this planet. He wants people to know this and to make sure that they're well-established in the truth. And then in chapter 3, there's a word of confidence. The early part of chapter 3, he says, you know, there are a lot of scoffers who say, where's the promise of his coming? Since the beginning of time, everything's just been happening in the same way. Nothing's different. He promised thousands of years ago that he was going to come, or at least in our day we could say that. Even back then, they were saying, he, he's not fulfilling his promise. And Peter says, you know why the Lord is tardy? It's not like when we are tardy. The Lord's patience is being displayed. He's not fulfilling his promise because he's giving people an opportunity to repent. He's long-suffering with us. He doesn't want people to perish. He wants people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's why the Father is waiting to send the Son. Oh, but be sure of this. With great confidence, be sure of this. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus is coming. And the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. And this whole world is going to be renewed. And all the ungodly are going to be judged. Say. If all that is true, what manner of people ought you and I to be? And that's where we get the theme for this book. How then should we live? Since these things are true, that we need to grow in the knowledge of God, that false teachers are out there, that the Lord is coming. Since these things are true, how should we live? Answer, know God and live godly. And that's what Peter strives to say as he shares with these Christians under persecution one last message from the guy who's trying to be a shepherd, from the guy who fell and got back up again and is making one last attempt to strengthen those under his care. There are a couple key words that I want to point out in this book that are repeated over, actually a cluster of words. You've got, first of all, the word know or knowledge is repeated about a dozen times. Uh, the book starts out with knowledge and ends with the subject of knowledge. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of, our God, of God and of Jesus our Lord. He talks about the fact that we are to add to our faith knowledge, verse 5. And verse 8 says there is a knowledge that is unproductive. That's theory only without practice and obedience. In chapter 2, he says the false teachers know something of what it is to be close to the gospel, 
They maybe understood it. Maybe they've escaped some of the corruption in the world by getting close to Christians. But it would, would have been better for them had they never known the way. And their end is going to be worse even than their beginning. And in chapter 3, the book ends with this famous verse, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So one of the keys to the Christian life, if you could call it a key, one of the secrets is know God. Get to know who he is. Get to know what the word says about him. And not just in the head, but in the heart. And in knowing God, your mind will be expanded and all kinds of blessings will come to you as we'll see in just a moment. There's another key word. It's the word or a cluster of words, remind, remember. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. So I will always remind you, Peter says, of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent, the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put this body aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Remind you, refresh you, I want you to remember. That becomes the key. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I write to you. So he's writing to the same group that he wrote in the first letter. Christians who are dispersed probably throughout Asia Minor, the seven churches of Revelation that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. He's writing to these Christians to encourage them to stand strong and be established in the truth, to know God. He says, I've written both of these letters as a reminder to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Right? So I've got to think right before I can live right. It is rubbish for us to say, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe, it's how you live. My friend, what you believe determines how you live. So I want to return you to wholesome thinking, Peter says, to right thinking, thinking about God that is true and thinking that leads you into action. This is the passion of his heart, that you might know God. With this in mind, let's go and look at the first few verses of this chapter as Peter tells us the blessings of knowing God. He tells us if we know God, certain things are going to be true. Our lives are going to be revolutionized if we know God. And here's the first thing. He mentions in verse 2, grace and peace will be yours. Well, I suppose we need to establish in verse 1 that these are people who are Christians. Uh, verse 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus. Let me just say, I love the beautiful symmetry there that Peter gives. Two names and two titles. Simon Peter is his whole name. Simon is his life before a Christian. Peter is the name that Jesus gave him when he says, your name is going to be the rock. Now, Peter wasn't always a rock. Sometimes he was more Simon than Peter. But I like the fact that he says, this is who I am. I'm a man of brokenness. But I'm a man who's been given a commission. 
I have something worthy to do to advance the kingdom of God. And we are all Simon Peters, if we're believers. That is, there is much in our life that is broken and weak, and yet God has gifted us. We've been called his children, and we've been commissioned to serve him. Secondly, there's a balance with the titles. He's a servant first and an apostle second. Now, I like the fact that he doesn't just proclaim, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who am I? I'm an apostle. You know, we've got people around this world today who love to claim that they are apostles. I'm an apostle of Jesus. There's a little bit of egotism in that. Perhaps there's a lot of egotism in that. Before you get to the apostle, master the concept of servant. In the word servant, there is humility. In the word apostle, there is authority. You and I are sinners saved by grace. We are to be servants of God, even though we are children of God. Keep the balance. So Peter is writing with this wonderful balanced perspective, and he's writing to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Wow, that verse is full of a lot of things. First of all, these are believers because they've embraced Christ, they've trusted Christ, and God has given to them the righteousness of Christ. That's the way a person gets to heaven, not by their own works, but by having God give you the perfect standing of his son, Jesus. The righteousness of God is credited to your account. It's in righteousness, the righteousness of God, that we stand before him clean, cleansed, redeemed, born again, whatever phrase you may want to use. And notice this is the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the same person. This is one of those beautiful texts that highlights the divinity of Jesus. In fact, it's a regular literary construction to take two different nouns and bring them together referring to the same person, connecting them with a little word, and. So it's not this person and that person. It's this person who is both this and this. Our God and our Savior, Jesus. He's both. The righteousness comes from God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's been received by faith. The word received means something bestowed as a gift, gratuitously given. It's been received not by merit, but by trust. And he says it's a faith, Peter says, as precious as ours. Very unique phrase. In fact, I think it's only found here in the New Testament. It's a, combi a combination of two words. It means equal and honor. Peter is saying the faith that you Christians have who are under persecution spread throughout Asia Minor, that faith is equal to the faith of us apostles. We share an equal faith. We're not above you. We are on the same level with you. You see, outside of Christ, in the church of Christ, there are different responsibilities, different tasks, different positions. But in Christ, there's neither 
Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. There's neither apostle or, or just minion. We are all on the same level. And that's what Peter is saying. I may be an apostle, but I want you to know we share the same exact faith with equal privilege and honor. And that's why I call it precious. So he says, this is what that precious faith, knowing God, gives you. First of all, grace and peace will be multiplied in your life. Notice it says, grace and peace is yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul began every one of his letters with grace and peace. When he wrote in the pastorals to Timothy and Titus, he added the word mercy. But Peter seems to one-up him a little bit. It's grace and peace multiplied. Did you know that when you get saved, you get saved because of God's grace, and the result is peace with God, right? But that's not the end. That's only the beginning. It's the floor, not the ceiling. Because if you go to the very last verse of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18, he says, I want you to grow in grace. I want you to get more and more of the grace of God. And I want peace to be multiplied in abundance in your life. How come we settle for just a little bit of grace and a little bit of peace? Now, it's not God's fault that we don't have more. It's our fault. But God wants to give to us without measure and without limit his wonderful grace and peace. And Peter says, this is my prayer, this is my wish for you, that grace and peace, you know what you have because you're saved? That that will just be multiplied in your life and fill your soul. How many of us live filled with grace and peace? It's a possibility. You and I can try to patch our lives together with a little bit of grace and a little bit of peace, but it's when we rely upon God and his wonderful storehouse of riches that we really get blessed. I love the story of the, of the little boy years ago who went into a, a store. It was an old grocery store, you know, where they used to have barrels of candy. And on this particular day, over the barrel of candy, this one barrel, it said, free candy, take one fistful. While the kids would come running in, you know, and they would grab a fistful of that candy as much as their fists could handle, and they'd go out and they'd try to come back in, and the grocer said, no, only one. But there's this one little boy standing at the edge of the barrel, just standing there looking. His friend said, take a fistful. Kind of looked at them, looked back, said nothing. The grocer felt pity for the little boy. Maybe he can't talk. Maybe he doesn't read. And so he said, son, go ahead. Take a fistful, grab as much candy as you want. The boy looked up at the grocer and looked back at the candy and did nothing. Finally, out of mercy, the grocer put his hand in, grabbed a handful of candy, and put it out to the little boy. He quickly put his two hands up and got all the candy and walked out of the store. His friend said to him, why didn't you get a fistful of candy? He simply said, because the grocer's hand is bigger than mine. <laughs> Think about that. God's blessings are bigger than anything you could manufacture, and he wants you to have them. 
He wants to pour out grace and peace upon you. Those are blessings that come. And by the way, how do you get grace and peace? Did you notice that in verse 2? How do we get grace and peace multiplied in our life? It comes through knowing God. You say, well, I know God. Yeah, that's what Peter said, and then, or, or what Paul said, but then he prayed that I might know him more. We need to go deeper into the knowledge of God. In fact, this particular word for knowledge means probably full knowledge, deeper knowledge. It's not the common word for just knowing something. It's knowing something fully. It's going into it deeply. And through a knowledge of God, grace and peace are multiplied. Secondly, because of knowing God, verse 3 says, we have divine power within us given to us so that we have everything we need for living a godly life, for life and godliness. How do we get this? It comes through what? The knowledge of God. Did you notice that, verse 3? It's the same key mentioned in verse 2. It's through the knowledge, deep, intimate knowing of God, walking with God, experiencing God, obeying God, drawing closer to God, that we get grace and peace. And we have within us this divine power that contains all that we need to live a godly life. Totally all-inclusive. It's there. You've got it. You don't need anything else. How many times we have parents have bought presents for our kids on Christmas morning? You know, we've got them all wrapped up. We can't wait for them to open it. This is the gift they want. They rip the paper off the present, and that's when we notice for the first time these words on the box, batteries not included. And so the kid opens it up. I want to play with this. Well, we don't have any batteries. So you scour the house. You finally find a couple dead batteries. You put them in, and the toy doesn't work for more than a moment. And Christmas morning is a bit of a dud because you didn't have everything you needed. Everything you need to live a godly life has been deposited in your heart by the grace of God. And by knowing him, that divine power is unleashed. It's kind of like a seed for a tree, isn't it? Everything for that tree is in that seed. Um, the bark, the branches, the leaves, the fruit, it's all in the seed. The seed simply needs to grow and flourish and blossom. And God has given to us by his spirit all that we need. It's in us as new creatures in Christ. And through the knowledge of God, that divine nature begins to actually work out itself in our day-to-day -day life. That is a rich blessing, all-inclusive by the grace of God. There's a third thing. Verse 4. Through these, oh, by the way, this is through our knowledge of him who called us, by his own glory and virtue, his own, the word virtue or goodness literally means miracle-working power. So it's by his majesty and his miracle-working power 
He also has given to us great, very great, and precious promises. So through a knowledge of God and understanding his glory and his power that has been placed in us, he gives to us precious promises so that, purpose statement, verse 4, so that by these promises we might participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by lust. Because I know God, I have the opportunity to be blessed with these benefits, grace and peace multiplied, divine power within me that gives me everything I live to, uh, need to live a godly life, plus added to that divine promises that when they are engaged by faith, those divine promises release the divine power within, and I participate in the divine nature. Not that I become God, but I began to live godly. The best definition of godly is this, live like Jesus. That's godly. When you get to the end of the book and it says, since everything is going to be burned up, how then should we live? The answer is live sober, righteous, godly lives. How do I do that? No God. He already told us in chapter 1. No God. Be filled with his grace and his peace. Know that he's given you everything you need to live a godly life, and now you need to take hold of the promises of God so that you can participate in the divine nature. The divine nature within will begin to take hold of your thoughts, control your words, dictate your actions. You'll begin to live like Jesus Christ. Peter loves to use adjectives. He talks about the precious faith. He talks about the abundance of grace and peace. Notice in verse 3, he talks about the very great promises, precious promises of God. That's kind of like piling on with the adjectives, isn't it? In fact, the, the Greek word there is mega, and it really means mega plus promises. They are exceedingly great and precious. So valuable you cannot calculate their worth. Because it's the promises of God that we embrace by faith that cause that divine power to turn into divine nature, godly living. And that's what he's after. There was a child's chorus that perhaps you sang when you were young or you taught your kids. Remember this one? Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line all the blessings of his love divine, every promise in the book is mine. Technically, it's not true. <laughs> um, there was a promise given to, to Naaman if he went and dipped seven times in a muddy river that he would come out healed. Don't try that. That promise is not for you. Or if you're in your 90s or 80s and you say, I want to have a child, and God said to Abraham, I will give you a son in your old age. That promise is not for you, okay? There's a few that aren't for you, but most every promise in the book is yours, and yet we don't engage with them. These are very great, exceedingly precious promises. Why? Because they come from God. 
Why? Because they can transform your broken life into a godly life. I like what Solomon said about the promises of God when the temple was being dedicated. This is 1 Kings 8:56. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises that God has given his servant Moses. Think about that. God has a perfect track record. Not one promise has ever failed, and they're called good promises. Or how about Titus chapter 1 and verse 2? It talks about the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and a knowledge that rests on the hope of eternal life. And these were promised to us by God who cannot lie. And he promised these things before the world began. God has a perfect track record, and whatever he promises, he performs. Man's promises are made to be broken. God's promises are made to be kept. He never can lie. And then I like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Amen means so be it. It's as good as done. Those are the promises that God has given to you. That's why they're very exceedingly great and precious promises. Grab hold of them, Peter says. That's how you get up from off the floor. That's how, by the, God's grace, you rise again. Grab hold of the promises of God. Here's a good one if you're broken. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you embraced that promise? Or how about this one? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you embraced that one? There was a dear Christian lady who passed away in the hospital with her Bible open on her bedstand. I think it was the nurse who came by first, took care of her body as the nurse had to, but noticed the Bible sitting on the bedstand. And she looked at it, and the capital letter P was written several places on the page. The nurse was curious. She opened the Bible in another place, and it was filled with P's from the beginning of the Bible to the end, and she was confused. A family member came in a little bit later and said, the nurse said, I'm sorry about your loved one passing. And when it was appropriate, she said, you know, I noticed her Bible. She was reading it a lot. And, and I noticed the, the letter P is everywhere. What does that mean? Do you know? And the loved one said, yeah, I know exactly what that means. She went through her Bible, and any time she saw a promise that she personally embraced, she put a capital P by the verse. And the book was filled with P. That is a godly life. How then should we live? Know God and live godly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge from this wonderful epistle. And as we study it this summer, I pray that we will not only have a theoretical knowledge of you, but we will go from being unproductive to fruitful as we mix faith with what we hear,
as we embrace your promise and do what you say, as we bank upon your pledge, the God who cannot lie and has a perfect track record, Lord, may we embrace your promises so that we can live in a godly way in this day and in such a way that others might see Christ in us. We pray in Jesus' name.